This is episode 48 of Alohomora for September 14th, 2013. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Alohomora. I'm Caleb Graves. I'm Laura Riley. And I'm Eric Skull. And joining us this week is a very special guest, also fellow MuggleNet staffer Rachel. She's a news intern and a lover, it says here, of sea turtles. Hi everyone. <laughs> sea turtles, huh? Where did that come from? Um, two of my best friends are actually biology majors. I thought you were going to say that two of your best friends were sea turtles. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a very different podcast. Yes. Um, no, um, and they volunteer with the Sea Turtle Conservation League of Singer Island down here in uh, South Florida. And I'm, I've been lucky enough to go out with them and get to see some baby sea turtles. And Oh, gosh. So you've actually, like, swam with sea turtles. No, no. These are just the hatchlings. We get oh. to uh, oh, they're babies. <laughs> yeah, we get to excavate the nests, and if there's any little last stragglers in the nests, we get to pull them up and save them. <gasps> oh, <laughs> would you say is the sea turtle your Patronus? So oh, I wish. So yes, different? that'd be great. <laughs> well, uh, and where are you from? Um, I actually live in South Florida. Awesome. Um, yeah. So I bet the weather is nicer there than it is. It is very hot. Yeah, hot oh, and humid. True. That's where it is, the way it is here in Texas. Is it? <laughs> it's yeah. actually the way it is here in New Jersey, too. It's hot everywhere right now. Okay, so just a reminder to fans, if you want to fully enjoy this episode and remember everything, uh, be sure to read Chapter 10, which is Mayhem at the Ministry, uh, before we dive in here. So we're going to start with your comments on our discussion from last week in which we talked about the chapter that's basically the aftermath of the Quidditch World Cup and we first see the dark mark. Um, one area of comments that pervaded the forums <laughs> that I want to address, um, we had some, tr we spent like, quite a bit of time last week talking about um, why Bagman shows up all um, intense, anxious, all sorts of things, and as so many of you pointed out, we forgot the fact that we do find this out later, um, that it is because he owed goblins money and the goblins cornered him in the woods at the Quidditch World Cup and took all that he had, uh, but he still didn't have enough to cover his debts. So, yes, that is correct. Um, <laughs> some of you, it seemed, were very frustrated that we forgot this. And I just kind of like to point out, we do definitely love that you guys um, remind us of things, but keep in mind, when we're doing one chapter at a time, it's very easy to forget details that we haven't quite got to in the book yeah well i for one am grateful i didn't make that my podcast question of the week which is what the original <laughs> thing was <laughs> otherwise it would all be directed towards me specifically so oh, gosh but thank you for reminding us because yes that is indeed why <laughs> he is that way we're tired um Okay, so the next comment comes on um, the topic of why Ron is more affected by the Velas in the, the forest than Harry is. And it comes from Magic Jinx 224 in the forums. And it says, I agree that Harry was very preoccupied with other stuff, and losing his wand also probably affected him. I also think Harry is just more capable of ignoring the charms of the Vila. I liken their charms with the effects of the Imperius Curse. They send out whatever it is, and the men do things that they otherwise normally wouldn't. 
We learn later on that Harry is capable of throwing off the Imperius curse because he has a very strong sense of will. I think that once Harry learned about the effects the Vila can have, he was more able to ignore those effects, probably using similar skills that he uses to throw off the Imperius curse. This, I think, helps explain Ron's actions here and why Harry wasn't affected like that. That's a good point. Very good comparison. I always like that Harry was able to throw off the Imperius curse, like, in Moody's lesson, because it's one of those very few instances where he, like, shows himself to be, like, for especially good at actual, like, just magic and not because of special reasons. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if only he were this good uh, right off the bat at legitimacy. Right. But, uh, yeah, totally cool. Uh, the next comment um, comes on the topic of, we talked quite a bit of Goblet of Fire being the turning point. We talked about that in past episodes, but last week we talked about how this is definitely true because we see real evil people violating other people. Something that's we're, even as muggles, more familiar with. Um, and this comment comes from Hufflepuff Skeen on the forums, and it says, I was very interested in the discussion about Goblet of Fire as a turning point in the series and its connection to such dark subject matter. Pushing aside the fact that Voldemort is literally reborn using the most terrible process imaginable in this book, the preceding events really are dark and troubling. For example, this chapter is about a full-on riot where a crowd basically kidnaps a family and tortures them in front of frightened people. This is a huge leap from previous dark moments in the series. Um, Quirrell and Voldemort, the Basilisk, Buckbeak's beheading, Dementor's kiss, because as Laura and Kat said, those moments were pretty heavily magical, and not so closely tied to our perspective. But most of us can certainly relate to riot-like situations and the panic they inspire. The evil in this book seems so much more real than before. You can feel the evil that surrounds Voldemort building and working its way back into Harry's daily life. Yeah, I think uh, uh, the fact that they said the the fact that it's um, a big group of people that are doing it in an almost riot-like way, um, I don't. The it, it makes you feel very much a sense of like, like those organized stuff like terrorism and things like that, um, rather than just one evil dark magical being. That's what kind of makes I think us as you know, Muggle humans and everything, uh, more affected by it because it it's really more a terrorist type plot than anything i think what makes it more effective too is that we just saw a bunch of chaos because the quidditch world cup was this chaos that was um you know lightly organized but there were just so many people there and it was all this excitement that we were feeling because there were so many people there but once all the people start panicking it very really becomes you know uncontrolled chaos and it becomes fear of the unknown it becomes you know, it was always, out, I guess, out of direct control, but when everybody starts panicking, it's like the the downside of the fact that there is everybody there for that huge event. Like, it was exciting at first for Harry, I guess is what I'm trying to say, but now it's completely turned around. Yep. Yeah, definitely. So the last um, set of comments, and this actually, it sparked quite a debate in the forums. We um, talked last week about the run-in that um, the trio has with a couple of Beauxbatons students. And um, we talked somewhat last week about the British versus French. I guess we more highlighted like the French dynamic, like why they respond that way. Anyway, I have two comments that come from different sides of the issue. One is from Dramatic Sheep, and it says, Just wanted to throw in two cents of the Hogwarts versus Beauxbatons debate. 
I think Joe was actually highlighting how the French see us, meaning the British, and look down on us. I have lived in France many times as a language student, and a lot of the French can actually look down on you if you don't speak their language. I also think Joe might be drawing upon her experiences of living in France from when she was an English teacher. A lot of the Parisians can be a bit cold and not very welcoming. I think this is reflected in the scene where Harry and company run into a Bobaton student in the woods. Um, that certainly set off quite a few fireworks, with particularly with Lily Rose, um, who comes from the French perspective, and says, I would like to point out that the reason most foreigners can find French people snooty is that, one, a lot of British and American people come to Europe without feeling the need to even attempt to speak the local language. I have come across this a lot. Um, while in France it is mandatory for students to finish school, having learned not one, but two foreign languages, there is no such obligation in the UK or US. And second, there is a huge cultural difference in the culture of politeness and customer service. While in the US, the customer is king. In France, the servers don't need tips, like we do in the US, to survive. And so they do their jobs without much pandering. In France, when you walk into a store, you should say, Bonjour, Madame, Monsieur. And sometimes when that custom is not respected, Parisians think the customer is being rude. Yeah, I really appreciate this comment. Um, that it has that uh, whole idea. And then, you know, it has nothing to do with French or British. The same could be said, really, of going anywhere. Um, of people that are going to a country and kind of expect them... Um, expect that country to you know conform to themselves like it's the whole idea of ethnocentrism and there's a quote that i'm paraphrasing that's like you know a foreign country is not supposed to make you feel comfortable it's supposed to make its own people comfortable um so yeah there is that idea that um if you're going to france you know french is the language that's spoken so Hmm. you know yeah i also think it's interesting because like just the fact that, like, we're talking about, like, mi- maybe a couple of lines in this huge Harry Potter series that, like, people are able to have this really awesome, um, branched out discussion. Yeah, definitely. Because it's really, you know, it, it it all it takes is that something that's small to spark that in that everything we see from the series is based out of the UK. So, you know, whenever a different country is introduced, it's such a much more narrower scope that it almost becomes defined by their culture, whereas we don't see uh, Harry's actions as being motivated because he's British. The other people, like the Bulgarians and the French, like that's the they're the only people from those cultures we see, so that's how we tend to identify them. Like, oh, they're from Bulgaria, they're from France, mm-hmm. and we kind of lump their characteristics in with that just because we get a narrower scope when that's not really fair. Mm-hmm. Well, now it's time for our podcast question of the week responses from last week. We had actually, I think, a really interesting um, podcast question last week based on a, a really unique moment in uh, this book. So uh, the question, just to reiterate, was uh, we talked a lot about Draco and how his comment that he makes towards Hermione and about the muggle woman in the sky is particularly vile. And it's even something that is uncharacteristic for him because it's something that is directed towards females and not just muggleborns. Why do you think Draco is behaving in such an even uncharacteristic way for him? Do you think, or do you consider this one of the lower points in his character arc? Or is there a moment in the future that you think trumps this from Draco? So we got a couple comments here. First from Hallow's Master, who says, We need to remember that Draco is 14 at the time of this incident. He is a young and confused teenager. I really don't consider Draco evil in book four. 
He is arrogant and very much influenced by his parents' decisions. I believe that the beginning of Half-Blood Prince is Draco's lowest point, because at that stage he strongly believes that Voldemort is right, and he shows how proud he is to be part of the Death Eaters. I think halfway through Book 6, Draco realizes that the Death Eaters are dark, twisted, and evil, and he realizes he doesn't want to be a part of that. As for this comment, I see it as a very unplanned remark. Draco needed a quick comeback to throw at the trio, and he thought of the first thing that came to mind. I really don't believe that a 14-year-old Draco actually comprehended what he was saying. He just wanted to make an impression. Yeah, I, I pretty much largely uh, agree that um, I would certainly not call Draco evil. I wasn't even implying that even with this question. Um, I think just more, vi the word we used, vile, is the accurate word of mm -hmm. um the, the vile and evil don't necessarily mean the same things. It's more just disgusting and degrading. But I do agree that he's, you know, he's 14 and there's certainly boys at that age that, or people at that age that, you know, make those remarks. Because they just kind of learned what stuff like that, you know, yeah. learned to talk like that. Yeah, exactly. I can recall saying something, yeah, equally offensive, quite different once or twice. Regretted it completely after I said it. And you'd even think, why did I say it? But, you know, as a kid, you just kind of do throw your weight around a little bit. Um, Leah McCurdy has something to add to that. Leah says, I think the context is important too. This is one of the few occasions the trio meets Draco outside of Hogwarts. The other occasions, such as in the robes shop with his mother in book six, when he makes similar terrible comments and completely disrespects the shop owner, are similar and quite characteristic. While he can be nasty at Hogwarts too, he is constrained a bit by the presence of teachers and rules, to whatever degree he actually follows them. But in this environment, in the summertime with his parents, and likely many other associated families, he has a bit more bravado. He certainly knows that his parents are involved in the terror that night, and so likely feels comfortable that he will not be harmed. I think his comments are also founded in the superiority he feels over everyone, especially Muggleborns and Muggles. His very harsh comments are targeted at Hermione in a small group of people and out of harm's way, so he feels pretty puffed up and a bit invincible. Perhaps adrenaline from the crazy atmosphere also contributed to his extra malice. I think he has had far worse moments in the series. These are just words, an empty threat really, but as other commenters have said, later on in the series he attempts murder several times, and though not directly, orchestrates Dumbledore's death. I realize that when he gets the chance to actually, quote, pull the trigger, he wavers, but all the premeditation and planning involved and the horrible acts of the cursed necklace and the poisoning come from a very dark place. It is all the more intricate because he is compelled to carry out those acts by the threat of death, so fear plays a big role, but I find it difficult to argue that Draco is not an intrinsically bad person. While every person is not wholly one thing, Draco has his both his good and his bad, and I don't find this type of comment uncharacteristic. See, my thing with like this and actually the comment before is, later in the series when he's acting and doing all these things in book six, I think it is pr most because he feels this pressure, and it, it has all to do with like the Malfoy family working always as a family unit it's right after lucius has been imprisoned and he feels he has to take his father's place and like definitely does not justify his actions but i think like what leah is talking about in this comment that it's out of a place of fear i think it's that more than anything um not necessarily that he's i do not think his actions in the sixth book are the most evil um they may have the most evil like consequences but mm. his person like as who he is i do not think 
those are his worst moments. I still think this is. That's well. That's a good point. I think, and I, I can kind of get what you're what you're getting at, Caleb here too, because you know when he later when he feels like it's his duty or whatever to protect his family or to to take up what Lucius uh, failed, he's not being as as genuine with his feelings here when there's no consequences in the middle of the woods. He can be his true self, um, and and he could be as good or as much like a punk as he wants to be, and and he chooses to be a punk and say this. So I, I I think this is a, a kind of a true moment of, you know, something that, that he did that came from who he really was. Right. And I think it's, once again, to stress, we weren't necessarily asking the most evil. Like, yeah, the most evil thing he did was cursing Katie and killing inver- inadvertently Dumbledore, etc. But it, just as far as his own motivations of being disgusting and just, like we said, a low point, like a low moral like thing. Like Caleb said, the other stuff is so much more complicated and so much deeper that it's just not something that I keep a surface level of like, yeah, that's like the worst thing he said or whatnot. Um, and our final comment uh, this evening comes from Jasmine Hines, who says, What Draco said was horrible, but I feel that he was playing a part. He, uh, his, he is saying what he knows will make Hermione feel uncomfortable, and what he knows will get under Ron and Harry's skin. He is still immature and trying to play his part in falling in line to follow his father. Also, we have to remember that Draco was brought up in a certain way of thinking— and was taught to believe that muggles and muggle-borns are beneath him. What is your first reaction, Rachel? I mean, I agree with that. Um, a lot, it's all socialization. You know, you believe what your parents believe. And at this point, I mean, we have to remember he's completely alone in the woods when they find him. He is completely and totally alone and probably feeling a little frightened himself upon finding three of his biggest so-called enemies um, barging in on him. And so I think he is trying to uh, get under their skin and make them uncomfortable. Yeah, definitely. All right, so with that, I think we're going to dive into our chapter discussion for this week. Chapter 10. Mayhem at the Ministry. All right, so... uh, now we're in like the aftermath of the aftermath uh in a pretty chill chapter <laughs> of like uh everyone's leaving uh the the world cup uh arthur he uses magic to put away the tents which is pretty interesting because he he don't even care anymore like they're not they're just getting out of there like before he was one of the people to care specifically about you know doing everything to code and doing everything without magic uh no one cares anymore so people are all clamoring to leave there as soon as possible they're all fighting to get to the port keys first and uh one thing i thought was interesting was you know mr roberts the muggle that had been attacked the previous night dazed in goodbye says merry christmas (laughs) and arthur says uh sometimes when a person's memory is modified it makes him a bit disoriented for a while and that was a big thing they had to make him forget um so i just thought this was interesting because i'm pretty sure this was a posed question of the week from a few weeks ago of what happens to someone when they get get kind of repeatedly, like how does that impact their mind? Right? Am I right in saying that was a yeah? I question? think it was either a, I think it was a question. It was either that or a big point of discussion. But I'm pretty sure yeah. it was a question. I'm pretty sure it was a question. Um, so you know, this it's I guess it's kind of answered in this, which is pretty much what we had the point we had reached 
that it's, you know, I don't think it's going to break them, like, as a person, like, mentally in the same way that, you know, the Lockhart is in, like, you know, we find out in Order of the Phoenix. Because he's saying, you know, that was a big thing. So this is a very big example of um, someone's memory being modified. And Mr. Weasley says, like, he'll be fine. Well, Mr. Weasley says, but does that make it true? I mean, it, it just seems like we've seen muggles or we've seen wizards be careless before. Um, oh, he'll be fine. You know, he's a little That's disoriented. Too easily. He's a, he's a little disoriented. He thinks it's five months from now or seven months ago. You know, <laughs> that, that's a very good. Half point. a year of his life is gone. It's, it'll he'll get it back. It'll come to him in a dream or something. Um, yeah, I think wizards are overstepping the bounds here. I think they probably could have handled his presence there differently. Um, but it's it's obviously it's very obviously a comedic point um, for this book right now, trying to poke at humor. Um, you know, after in we- a kind of disturbing way. Yeah, it's like oh, like isn't it hilarious because he doesn't know what month it is because he got tortured yesterday well we think it's yeah we <laughs> think it's disturbing but i think when i probably first read the book i was probably like uh, uh you know because i thought the threat was gone because clearly he forgot right clearly he doesn't know anymore that that happened to him so i think the the threat is is gone and now it's just funny but that's how i would have felt when i was younger yeah um okay so now they all get back to the burrow and uh, after Arthur, Mrs. Weasley runs straight for the twins, wraps them around, r- wraps her arms around them, squishing them to death because she's feeling horribly guilty about, you know, that they had gotten in a big fight before the whole, <laughs> before they left the Quidditch World Cup. And, uh, you know, she could have, she, you know, Rita Skeeter, which I'll get to in a second, has now built this up to be a big thing in the press. So Mrs. Weasley thought, you know, that they could have died or whatever. So. Yeah, because that's never going to happen. Oh, oh, oh. oh, here I was going to say um, that this is a setup and the payoff is later in this chapter. But yeah, uh, exactly. the payoff, there's a different kind of situation. Later. In about three books. Oh, God. I will get to that. <laughs> but, uh, so I think it's funny, you know, they get in for breakfast and Mr. Weasley's taking his tea Irish. He's pouring shots of whiskey into it (laughs) through the morning but um this is i think correct me if i'm wrong the first introduction we get of rita skeeter Mm -hmm. yes think so yeah okay um so uh in the prophet you know she had written all about the disasters that had gone on at the world cup and you know percy's not having any of it he's starts like calling her like this vile you know woman and the stuff that she's <laughs> well she writing. attacked his article on cauldron bottoms <laughs> that's yeah, that's exactly. what it is is he's been personally attacked by rita he's been personally victimized by yes rita. yes he says the min- she said the ministry of magic is focusing on cauldron thickness they should be focusing on stamping out vampires and did you guys catch that her half human prejudice started now with this this thing where she suggests vampires are a problem for Britain that should be stamped out. How cool is that? Because that comes into play, obviously, later when she does the piece on Hagrid. Um, she just doesn't like half-humans. Hmm. Didn't pick up on that. But uh, what, one thing I think is funny is that while Percy's going on about it, like, 
for the wrong reasons. Bill said, Bill says, do us a favor, purse, said Bill yawning, and shut up. <laughs> and I just like when, like, different, when different Weasley is like, we still at this point don't necessarily know a lot about Bill. So this was really fleshing out his character of like someone I really liked. Like in the well, book. It's interesting because Bill also has had his own run in with, um, Rita, or was that Charlie? I'm sorry. Who, nope, that, that, that was, was Bill. Bill. Um, so he can totally see where everybody's coming from. He doesn't like her either. Um, yeah, he called, Rita Skeeter called him like a long-haired something <laughs> or other. And then Molly's like, oh, like, well, it is a bit long. That's the thing, no. is everybody kind of agrees <laughs> with, with something that Rita's doing. They just don't agree with how she's doing it. It's weird. It, it's, it's, it's funny, yeah. and it's complicated, and it's the way that all things in life are just a little bit more complicated than they ought to be. Um, which is why something like this, which is a you know fairly short chapter, is so entertaining at the same time. Yeah. So uh, it goes on in the article that Rita writes that Arthur kind of rashly, it's not that big a deal, but said that when he emerged from the whole dark mark scene that, you know, oh, no one's hurt. But uh, Rita takes this and says like that, you know, the ministry spoke too soon because now there's rumors of bodies being removed from the scene. <sighs> so <laughs> I wonder how much of that was her and how much was her quick quotes quo. Just you know, they're like one and the same, of course. But she just kind of to stir the pot. She says that there were bodies, and uh, Mr. Weasley reacts the same way. He says, "Oh, now there will be rumors." Um, you know, it's like she's just blatantly starting rumors that aren't true. Um, because she can. It's a very good first introduction to Brita. Yeah, it really sets up her character. Mm -hmm. We'll probably get to this like later when Rita's like officially introduced. Um, but I'm just like so curious as a person that's going into journalism, the magic behind the quick quotes quill, like is it 100% doing all the work? Does Rita do any of it? Like, I totally always wanted to know what the deal is with the quick quotes quill. But Yeah, can, I think we should save that. We'll save that, yeah. We'll probably get chapter. it in Pottermore as well. Hopefully so. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, Arthur, because of, you know, this comment that he makes and just the general mayhem at the ministry. Um, <laughs> I see what you did there. Yeah. He decides he's going to go back to work, and Percy says that, you know, he'll go in with him so that he can give his all-important report to Crouch in person. And, you know, it just kind of made me think, just as, like, a side thing, like, of the idea of Percy and Arthur, like, going into work together, like, however way that is. I don't know if they just, like, apparate, but, you know... I guess because I'm thinking, like, the movie of when, like, Harry and Arthur go into the ministry together <laughs> and there's more, like, a conversational thing. I just, I guess I was just trying to picture that one-on-one -on -one relationship between Percy and Arthur. Because we only ever see the Weasleys, like, in a large family dynamic. That's true. And not ever, like, one-on-one. -on -one. So I was just kind of thinking about that for, like, you, you, two seconds. You know, I think Arthur would be proud of Percy. Um, you know, he is the only one who's destined for a ministry job. Or it looks like there is going to get a ministry job. And the part of Arthur that enjoys being part of government um, is reflected in his son. I think he would be, I think they would get along. You know, at this point, we're seeing the very beginnings of, um, for instance, when, when Percy throws Arthur under the bus. You know, to God, Molly. That's so terrible. I I'm, get so angry at that. Yeah, but it's still, at this point, it's a matter of opinion. It's harmless. It's, you know, a little bit, I don't want to say self deprecating, but it's against, it's going against your own family. 
And we're seeing the very beginnings of that here. But I think for now, Arthur would be quite proud of Percy. I think they would have a lot of good, nice things to talk about. At least, you know, they would see eye to eye um, on the way to and from work. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I just envision that those would be the most boring conversations I could ever have. <laughs> well, I agree with that. Well, nobody's boring is in the eye of the beholder. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> you know, it's it's like, well... Uh, well, let's see what, uh, yeah. what we can talk about here. Because <laughs> both of them have, well, I guess being an assistant to Mr. Crouch is, I don't know who has a more exciting job, but they are in other departments, you know? It's not like he's assistant to the minister. Yeah. So Harry is waiting for a post from Hedwig, but there is no sign. And from Hedwig, I don't mean like Hedwig's writing him a letter of seriouses. <laughs> um,. <laughs> But uh, he finally tells Ron and Hermione about the fact that his scar was hurting. And, you know, I forget, like, how much, because there's so many chapters into this, that there's only been, like, three days or something that have passed. Um, but they react pretty much exactly, like, how he thought he, like, you know, when he envisioned them in, like, chapter two of, oh, Ron would do this and Hermione would go to Dumbledore. And they pretty much do exactly what Harry thought. So it's pretty funny. But uh, Harry brings up Trelawney's prediction about, you know, from last year of how Voldemort's servant will rejoin him, Voldemort will rise again, and uh, Hermione, like, brings herself back down from, like, terror for some sass, and she's like, no, like, psh, like, Trelawney can't do anything, like, stop it, Harry. But uh, <laughs> Harry keeps, you know, insisting that it was different, and she kind of went into, like, this weird trance thing, which we know is legit. Mm-hmm. But uh, one thing I like is that while Harry's like all, f everyone's freaking out about this between the three of them and Ron's like, oh, Harry, you want to go play Quidditch? And Hermione's like, oh, like, Harry wouldn't want a time like this. And Harry's like, yeah, sure. <laughs> Hermione just says boys. <laughs> I like it. But, but of course, they're like, it's totally a way to like get everything out of it, like off his mind and just like do something that doesn't relate to any of I'm going to smash some stuff into dirt. I want to hit a bludger into your brother's face. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah. It's a bit like so that. So this is something that, like, totally doesn't matter, but just kind of struck me as interest. I don't know if this is only in the U.S. US edition, but, like, right at this point, there was, like, three little asterisks, like, in centered in the middle of the page to, like, denote time passing. And for some reason, I just thought it was interesting because she doesn't usually do that. Usually, she just, like, within the next sentence, will use, like, a phrase that just time passes, and that's it. So, I don't know. It totally doesn't matter, but it just struck me as odd that... Yeah, she doesn't do that very often. Yeah. Yeah, but it does happen. It's it's kind of throughout the series. It's just not very often, but um I believe the U UK editions have that as well. Yeah. I think it's a I don't know what the name for it would be. Um but it it does it is sort of an established cuz I feel like I've seen it in other books, but then again I may have just seen oh, yeah. it in like Casual Vacancy, <laughs> which she also did. No, like I use that as a writer all the like at the time. I just think it's interesting in that she usually just passes through time without feeling the need to justify it with any sort of visual break mm -hmm. that I don't understand why this was necessary, especially when time isn't jumping like more than an hour or so. At a time. But yeah. It's what it is. Okay. Um now there was just one really great subtle detail that I just appreciated. Um where they're just talking about all the Weasleys are just sitting around, but is just kind of says like, oh, and Hermione, uh, Ginny was sitting on the floor mending her textbook with spello tape. And I just think it's a, like it caught me as a really nice detail to just kind of remind you that it's all of the Weasleys like suffer from like the of having secondhand things because we're almost 
always just consistently shown that it's Ron. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that the Weasley twins become wealthy on the by on their own, and we think of them as wealthy. Right. That I forget that, like you know, Ginny also has all secondhand things, and all the older boys have secondhand things, and it's just everyone. Yeah. So you're absolutely right. I, I um got to that point and thought the same thing. Oh, that's you know special, and Ginny has to deal with it. So yeah. And Ginny's the youngest at this point, so her stuff has been through the ringer like more than anyone else. Oh, poor Ginny. And this, I feel like I'm wrong at, but more so than like when I said about Rita Skeeter. But is this the first mention we get of Bundungus Fletcher? Uh, no, no, no? it's not. I, I didn't think so. I didn't think so. There's um a passing okay. reference to him in uh, Chamber of Secrets when um <laughs> Arthur comes home from the Ministry and he says that uh Mundungus Fletcher was trying to hex him behind his back. Uh, mm-hmm. That's right. There we go. Maybe Mundungus Fletcher is just like J.K. Rowling's go-to like irritating character that does irritating things um but you know it, it's funny because he put puts in a damaged property claim for a 12 bedroom tent with an ensuite jacuzzi <laughs> and he was sleeping was under a, a cloak propped on sticks so you know even wizards they know what jacuzzis are they got them to try to cheat the system like he did yeah it's just it's such a, a deep you know it's something that happens in the muggle world you wouldn't expect to see it just show up here, and it does. You know, the fact that there's people trying to take advantage of the system, and Weasley, Mr. Weasley's complaining about it. It's really brilliant. Yeah. So, uh, Molly talks about how Arthur hasn't worked this hard, because he's all gone at the office since the days of you-know-who. And that's another thing that just reminds me, because to me, all the entire Harry Potter series, to me, is the days of you-know-who. I always forget that there's the rest of the world to me to them those days are so over finite not coming back so it's like oh you remember the days of you know who like and it's just weird that like those days are coming back like in a few short months and um to me they're always omnipresent but you know to all these characters it's totally in the past which is obvious but i don't know it still struck me in this sentence okay and and uh, Eric, you mentioned this. Percy says that Arthur needs to make up for his mistake at the match, and Molly's having none of it. And Molly like s- freaks out. I mean, it reminds me of like Game of Thrones when like Tyrion like slaps Joffrey. <laughs> like, yeah, not, not gonna say that. I wish she'd actually slap him, but uh, yeah, this is pretty much one of the first instances we see of Percy turning against his family. Oh, come on, everybody hates Percy. I don't, I don't, I don't get it. Um... Do you though? <laughs> Yeah, okay, I get it, but I just think that uh, he's not quite that bad now. He's just, they should, if he had more love from his family to help him see the error of his ways, that's all. That's all I'm saying. Well, now this is just a one thing, and I, I kind of wish, I don't know if there's a difference in the phrasing, if it's like British term, how like sweaters, jumpers, it says like, Charlie was donning a fireproof uh, balaclava. Aren't balaclavas like those big, like black, like ski mask looking things that like cover your whole head? <laughs> Isn't that what it is? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I have to look it up. Yeah, huge ski mask things. Open, yeah. open, open eyes though. Open face, kind of. But uh... but like that's not something you just casually wear around the house. <laughs> well, no. Um, when I was rereading it, it struck me because I didn't know what it was. And when I looked it up on the wiki, it said that um, they're actually commonly used by firefighters 
Fireproof ones are used by firefighters, and it helps minimize the risk of potentially fatal burns to the neck, back, oh. and scalp, and face. So, right. since he works the dragons, yeah. Yeah, no, I got that much, but, like, the point is, is not he's, there's no dragons around. Like, there he's could at, be. <laughs> <laughs> could be. Like, dragons. that's my issue. It's a perfectly suitable attire for work for him. I think he's gotten used to it, you know? At this point, it's it's as much a part of his skin as anything else. <laughs> I suppose. Um. Um, so, you know, this is... Like we said, there isn't a, lot, a whole lot that um, happens in this chapter. It's a lot of just really, like, nice dialogue. And particularly, there's stuff with the twins again. You know, Fred and George have their quills out, and they've... Bent, they're bent over and they're talking in whispers uh, and at this point we don't really know if they're working on wizard weasley wizard wheezy stuff or the issues that they have with bagman i'm leaning towards bagman what do you i think they're think? working on i think they're working on the store later on we find out that they've been writing letters to bagman to, to, to try and get their money back um and and just because he cheated the, cheated them out of it yeah. yeah, but it seems like that wouldn't need, be something they need to, like, huddle up and, like, go back. And, like, it seems like they're having, like, a discussion here, like, to try to plan stuff. Yeah, I think it's just, but for the rest of the book, they are all huddled and about it. Because every time Ron asks, they're like, oh, what's it to you? Like, they, they don't want anyone, I guess, knowing. And I think also because they don't want their mother knowing that they were, like, gambling their stuff away. <laughs> yeah, because so. if, if the uh, outcome of the match had gone the other way... I mean, can you just imagine Bagman would be beating down their door looking for that money because he needs it to pay off the goblins. Yeah. I think it's interesting how the whole um, Fred and George kind of gambling thing in the absence of Bagman in the films kind of got interpreted for the Goblet of Fire film because it's pretty much the only role they serve in the film is to like the transitions of the tasks of like going and like doing the bets with people. Yeah. Um, But R.A.P. Weasley pro. Weasley twin plots is what I say oh. every film but uh, and I think it's funny because you know Mrs. Weasley asks like what are they up to and she's, they're like homework and they're like don't be ridiculous you're on holiday and George says yeah we've left it a bit late thought it was funny okay so and the Mrs. Weasley accuses them of working on wizard Weasley wizard 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 Weasley's wizard Weasley's Weasley's. Weasley's. <laughs> I normally can say <laughs> um and Fred says, now, Mom, if the Hogwarts Express, Express crashed tomorrow and George and I died, how would you feel that the last thing we ever heard from you was an unfounded accusation? So this is pretty much what Caleb was, like, alluding to before, but it's, like, double hard to read this now. And it's like, oh, haha, ha, like, everyone's laughing at the di- idea of them dying. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty rough. <sighs> Too much. Uh, and Rita also finds out about Bertha Jorkins at this point. Um. And that, you know, now the ministry is finally starting to pay attention attention to it. And Percy gets in what another argument, particularly with Hermione, once again about the Hells Elves. And I think at this point in the series, Percy's just at continually, like, chapter for chapter, being developed more as an antagonist and not just someone that's an, the annoying older brother. But he is still that. Right. This is pretty much the transition between yeah. that. And, uh... And the chapter ends up, ends with Ron discovering as the lace and dodgy old collars of his dress robes that Molly has packed for him. They're <laughs> secondhand. Harry's aren't. It's a shame. <laughs> and I like, Mrs. Weasley says they're bottle green because they'd bring out the color in his eyes. And I always like remember in like 
the movie like how the guys obviously just wear like normal things like they're not in like the different colored dress robes could have been interesting yeah i would have liked to see the bottle green um dress robes in the movie yeah they would have mm. brought out the green in daniel radcliffe's eyes <laughs> whoops something <laughs> needed to oh whoops but uh harry feels uncomfortable again because you know he would have bought new robes for Ron because he has an endless supply of money. It's never explained. <laughs> but um, Mrs. Weasley says, fine, go naked. And Harry makes sure to get a picture of him. Goodness knows I could do with a laugh. Oof. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so it just ends out in the same way that Ginny, the, the, the throwaway line with Ginny of mending her book. It's a particularly pitiful quote that Ron says of why is everything I own rubbish as he's unsticking Pidwidgeon's beak from wherever it's stuck. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I, like, feel terrible for Ron, but just the way, like, the things he does when he says things like this are so hilarious. Yeah. Not for the right reasons, but they are. Yeah, that was pretty perfectly done. (laughs) God. (laughs) Don't worry, Ron, your time's coming. Sort of. Not really. Uh. And that leads us to our podcast question of the week. Who's excited? I'm excited. You're excited? Okay, good. <laughs> I think All it's right. it. Well, I'm excited to see like where you could take because this is like a really interesting chapter because like we had really intense things happen in the chapter before and this is like oh we're kind of settling down before we go back to school. So this better be the most in depth, intense question of the week we've ever had on our podcast. Go. Okay. Um. So a week passes in this chapter, uh, and during that week, it's said that everybody, Arthur and Percy, are leaving before people wake up and getting home late at night after work. Um, so this uh, week's podcast question of the week is related to that. In this chapter, all the ministry officials are in an all-hands-on-deck mode. Even Arthur, who is working in an off-department about Muggle artifacts, and Percy, an assistant, are going into work to try and keep some of the slanderous acts of Rita Skeeter and the general fright and mayhem from consuming the public and bringing down the government. Since the Dark Mark event didn't even leave a a huge physical mess for everyone to clean up, what is everyone in the ministry doing, and how should they be handling this PR issue? Uh, What is everyone doing day in, day out that's consuming all of their efforts? Yeah, definitely an interesting question. Especially considering we know how uh, lacking in effectiveness the ministry generally is. Yeah, it's hard to ask this sort of question because we know that not a whole lot does happen um, as well. But maybe that's why it brings, you know, raises the question is because ultimately there's no great statement made that I can think of that really calms the masses of people. So what's everyone working on? Cool. Yeah, send us your thoughts on that for sure. All right, and we want to thank Rachel for joining us today. We hope uh, you had fun. It's been kind of a crazy day in the Muggle land of MuggleNet, but thanks for still getting the t- giving us the time to, to join us. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. And if you want to find out how you can be on the show, head over to our website, alohomora.mugglenet.com, or you can email us at alohomorapodcast at gmail.com. We do ask that all of our applicants, all the people who would like to join us on this show, do have good recording equipment and a recording program upon which to capture their audio. Um, 
Also, if you uh, are working on getting that and you'd like to be on someday, that's cool. In the meantime, you can always subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. And uh, you can always contact us uh, at our usual ways of contacting us, which are our Twitter at at MN, Facebook.com slash Open the Dumbledore. And you can leave us a voicemail at 206-GO-ALBUS, which is 206-462-5287. And make sure you check out our really awesome store that has a lot of merchandise, um, shirts, tote bags, and other stuff, sweaters, all sorts of stuff. You should go look at it. It's great. <laughs> and not to mention the Alohomora podcast app, which features special content, downloadable transcripts, bloopers, alternate endings, host vlogs, and more. Caleb, you and I should start working on a game for the app where the Jarvies are getting chased by the gnomes. What do you think? Yes, I'm so down for that. So we'll see if we can do that. Maybe, Maybe the next shirts, after we get the newest shirts that are coming out, we'll have Team Jarvie and Team <laughs> Gnome. <laughs> I like that idea. But of course, back to the app. It is available both in the US and UK for iPhone, iPad, Android, and Kindle. Uh, also... Windows 8 availability is in the U.S. only. It is $1.99 in the U.S. and £1.29p in Great Britain. All right, well, that does it for this episode of Alohomora. I'm Caleb Graves. I am Eric Skull. I'm Laura Riley. Thank you for listening to episode 48 of Alohomora. Open the Dumbledore. And if you would like to be on the show the way Rachel was, join MuggleNet staff. (laughs) (laughs) Whoa. (laughs) That was a joke. But, um, okay, I guess it wasn't really funny. Thank you for the pity laughs, though, all of you. (laughs) It was funny. I just didn't catch it at first. I was like... (laughs) Talk about serious deja vu. (laughs) (laughs) Store. Thor, Caleb. Caleb. Accidentally muted myself. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, why are you interrupting me? <laughs> <laughs> okay.